Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. It's getting colder, and here in Connecticut, we often get walloped by winter in January and February. And that u- that's usually around the time when we start dreaming of a resort vacation with beautiful beaches. Americans who crave a sunny getaway often head to Florida or further south to the Caribbean. Today, we're focusing on that region made up of islands and surrounding coasts in the Caribbean Sea. Coming up, we'll hear from the director of the new Center for Caribbean Studies at Trinity College in Hartford. He'll tell us more about the Caribbean's influence on Connecticut. And later, we'll hear from local residents with roots in Jamaica and Puerto Rico about the islands and what brought them here. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WNPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. But first, what should we know about the Caribbean? And how have these island nations shaped our history and culture? I'm joined now by Joshua Jelly Shapiro. He's author of Island People, the Caribbean and the World. Josh, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you. Glad to be here. I understand you're a New England native. When did you get bit by the Caribbean bug? Yes, this is true. I uh, grew up mostly in Vermont, was born in Boston, but grew up in Vermont. And uh, I suppose I was bit by the Caribbean bug, you know, I was sort of 11, 12, 13 years old. And I I really fell in love with Jamaican music. You know, I fell in love with reggae and had uh, Bob Marley posters on my wall in junior high school. And I think that was really the uh, the start of it all. And so you were, you said junior high, middle school, um, but then you began traveling in the Caribbean while in college. And why did you still have this interest years later? Yeah, that's right. I, you know, as I say, I sort of fell in love first, I think, with Jamaican music and then, uh, and then with Cuban music. I worked in a record store in high school in Vermont. Uh, but then when I went to college, started college in Connecticut uh, at Yale, so I was living in New Haven. And I, I really grew interested in studying Caribbean literature, Caribbean history. Uh, you know, listening to Bob Marley for me it was, you know, these were great songs. He's a remarkable artist. But one of his great achievements, right, was to turn these heavy subjects like the triangle trade, slavery, sort of trying to create identity and culture in a strange land into this great music. Uh, And so for me, that was really a prompt to study the region. And that's what I did uh, as a student and then went on to do so in graduate school and, and had the sort of idea and ambition to go travel through these islands and not only to study them in books, but to to study them up close. So you're a native New Englander heading down to the Caribbean. Where did you start? I started, you know, Cuba, I think, was the first place I went when I was 18, 19 years old. Uh, And Havana uh, is just an entirely enchanting city. So kept going back every chance I got. I went to Trinidad and uh, really became enamored uh, not only of the writing there, but also of the calypso music, the incredible sort of wit and wisdom of of this uh, musical culture and carnival and the great food there. Folks from India are in Trinidad, of course, not only Africa, so there's an amazing cuisine. Uh, And it just went from there, you know, and from there I was spent time in really all of the big islands, uh, Hispaniola, both ends, Haiti and the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, and then many of the small ones, too, in the course of, of writing this book. 
and each island nation so very different. Um, can we look to um, the, the colonial history and, and which countries ruled there before um, you saw the, um, you know, the adaptation of all these different cultures uh, moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is this is the thing is that you have in the Caribbean, you know, all of the great sort of European empires were were active there, you know, and this is this is where the new world began. You know, it wasn't sort of New England that Columbus showed up to. It was it was the Caribbean. And uh and the sort of story of the Americas and the conquest of the new world, uh first by the Spanish, but then the French and the English turn up there. All of them right uh, own various of these islands. Uh, mm-hmm. When sugar came, when Europe decided that it really liked sweetness and liked sweet things, uh, you know, sugar got going in a, in a huge way in the 1600s. Uh, and really, the Caribbean was was shaped by more than anything Europe's sort of thirst for for sugar, for wealth as well, of course, and the money that you could make from sugar. But you know, in the Caribbean. There were six million Africans imported there. Uh, you know, we like to think sometimes of North America, I think, as, you know, the sort of center of the slave trade. And, of course, we had slavery in the South and, and cotton and so on. But it was quite late and small in terms of the broader story of the slave trade and of, of, of the Americas. There were six million people brought to the Caribbean. It was really the hub of the triangle trade. And, you know, just tremendous numbers of people, these incredibly brutal plantation colonies uh, that existed there, of course, resulted in, among other things, the Haitian Revolution. But, you know, this incredibly complex, violent history, but that yielded these societies that, uh, you know, have these remarkable cultures today uh, and are really made by people like all over the Americas, right, but are created by people who aren't from there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a, it's a tremendously sort of rich region and one that's fascinated me for a long time, and that's why I wrote this book. I'm speaking with Joshua Jelly Shapiro, author of Island People, the Caribbean and the World. Um, we're looking at um, this book and just talking about the influence of the Caribbean here on our region and our country and, and other uh, nations around the world as well. Now, Joshua, when you traveled around, did you find that they welcomed you as someone, you know, obviously not native, uh, depending on where you were in the Caribbean? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's like traveling anywhere that the the more sort of open and and uh and humble and curious you are, you know, it's it's about making human connections anywhere you go. Um and for me, I was, you know, determined from quite a young age just because I was invested in this idea of the Caribbean as, you know, not just a place to go on vacation, but as a as an extraordinarily rich place historically and culturally and have had these musics in particular that have really just shaped shaped our culture and shaped the world. So I was interested always in, you know, not staying on resorts, of course, although that's part of what exists in the Caribbean, but, you know, to stay with people in their homes, to connect with people where they live. Um, you know, I learned Spanish to be able to do so on the Spanish-speaking islands, and um, my French is okay. It's not, not, not quite up to snuff, but I... You know, I get by and uh, and connecting with people where they are. I think people, if you're curious and and admiring of of what they have to offer, then people people love to talk with you. And so that's that's always been my approach in that part of the world or wherever. And when you traveled to Jamaica, tell us what you found. I mean, here in in Connecticut, there's a large uh, Jamaican population. We're going to talk to um, uh, a community leader from that uh, in New Haven in just a little bit. But I'm curious um, what some of the things that struck you about the Jamaican culture besides the music. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love that you mentioned the Jamaican population in Connecticut. I was just reading that the, you know, it's actually the biggest uh, population of immigrants in in Connecticut are, are folks from Jamaica now, which is very interesting. Um, and I remember being there, living in New Haven, and and that presence of you know the cuisine of jerk chicken and. And also, of course, the promoters at Toad's Place in New Haven always booked reggae acts. Uh, but going to Jamaica, you know, as I say, I, I fell in love with this music from afar. And uh, reggae, of course, being the sort of the sort of main thing that people know. But Jamaica, with the music and also beyond the music, you know, it's this place that I think there's a there's an incredible uh, sort of impetus and emphasis on on performance and sort of fashioning yourself as a as a star, right? You think about that that Sly Stone song, right? Everybody is a star, or Big Youth, the reggae reggae singer had a version of that too. Uh, but the idea there that you know everyone in this new world place where we're sort of making it up as we go along, that to create oneself as a character and and to have sort of wit to share and 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 sort of verbal pyrotechnics and and expressing oneself through fashion and and so on. It's a it's a it's a marvelously inventive place, an inventive culture, um, and I really I love spending time in Jamaica. Uh, you know, and there are of course the beautiful beaches and resorts, but I tend to go to Kingston, which is where, you know, of course the the music and the culture really happens. Uh, the culture of street dances there, for example, that back way back in the fifties, you know, these things called sound systems got started, which are Essentially, these guys put big speakers and, and sound systems in the back of trucks and had outdoor dances. And they really, you know, shaped the culture there in an amazing way that dancing in public, that music and, and sound are such a part of, of, of how things happen. And that's really a, a, a sort of notable part of Jamaica for sure. Now, when you, I understand you live in New York, and when you look at the Jamaicans that have come here for work and then have brought their families and generations later, how has Jamaica uh, shaped uh, the New York scene as well as other uh, major cities around the world, including London? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the one thing I write about in this book is that the Caribbean, uh, as a Cuban writer, Antonio's Antonio Benitez Rojo puts it, seems to expand beyond its sea with a vengeance, as he puts it. And I think partly that's about, you know, all the immigrants who have left the islands, you know, looking for better lives. But in, especially in coming to places like New York and London, which are these major world cities where if you do something or make a record, you know, they're kind of these megaphones that then, you know, shape shape culture everywhere. And in New York, of course, one of the great examples of this is that, you know, hip-hop culture which we think of as, you know, it was sort of born in the Bronx in the 1970s when everything was burning and, you know, this very difficult decade for the city. Uh, but these kids in the Bronx, you know, just found this incredible new way of expressing themselves. But who who did that? You know, it was Jamaican kids uh, who were familiar with DJ culture and spinning records and DJ Cool Herc, you know, he's Jamaican. Uh, and then it's Puerto Rican kids doing, you know, graffiti and, and breakdancing and Hip hop is deeply Caribbean, you know. It's New York, but it's a it's a deeply Caribbean culture, um, and so that's that's one sort of super prominent example of how, not just with reggae or or things that we think of as Caribbean, but you know, the Caribbean has really really shaped our culture in, in profound ways here in New York for sure. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about the Caribbean today. It's more than just beautiful beaches. I want to take a quick call. Ellen's calling from Stanford. Ellen, you're on the show. Hi, how are you all? We're doing well. Good. 
Um, my first experience in the Caribbean, and you better sit down for this one, was in 1958. I was five years old, just about, taken out of school to live with my sister and my parents because my father was a contractor in Antigua um, to build um, a missile base because of the um, maybe future um, missile crisis. So we had to live down there. We had a nanny. And it was so primitive. They used to walk around with bottles and fruit and food on their heads with their batik colorful dress. And we, the dogs, I mean, the cows were like Great Danes. They were so skinny. You couldn't drink the milk. So my mother used to bring carnation milk, that powdered milk down. And um, we found um, that we couldn't swim in the pool that was there. We stayed at the White Sands Hotel. I don't know if it's still there anymore. My father used to have a little red scooter. He used to go across to go to the building he was working at. And then um, I remember so much all the steel drum band music. And I remember how they set the tables with beautiful folding of, of the cloth napkins. And all of it was is so in, vivid in my mind, and this is lots of years later. And um, I've been to other islands. I've been to St. Thomas, St. Martin, um, St. Croix, um, the Virgin Islands, uh, as well as Puerto Rico. And uh, the memory sticks in me uh, with the steel drum and the beautiful flowers, uh, tropical flowers, and that's my memory. Well, thank you, Ellen. That sounds like a, a very interesting uh, background as a child. Um, and before we go to break, uh, Joshua, um, your experiences in Antigua, also the British Virgin Islands, you know, what are some of the things that you take away from that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Antigua is a, you know, it's a fascinating place. It's a very small island. It was, it was British. Uh, it was sort of the British capital of that part of the sort of northern, uh, the northern lesser Antilles. And, of course, the great writer from Antigua is Jamaica Kincaid. Uh, who grew up there and wrote uh, many great books about growing up there and the sort of difficulty of growing up in a colonial place and the and the sort of uh, the sort of psychic violence of of being, you know, uh, educated in an English system and sort of creating her own identity. A small place is her great book about that. But I love uh, uh, the caller's mention of, of steel bands there. Uh, because steel bands, of course, they come from Trinidad, so you know, way down in the southern Caribbean, uh, and it's a great story about you know there's a U.S. naval base there, so tons of these oil drums during World War II, and people in Trinidad being inventive, you know, turn them into this wonderful uh, instrument, and now have these incredible orchestras, a hundred you know steel drums, and there's nothing like it to be uh, in the middle of a steel drum orchestra in full flight during Carnival. It's something I love, but they. They spread to the other islands, and Antigua, absolutely, in the 1950s, was one of the places that had a really rich uh, steel drum culture, and it, it came from Trinidad, and it was literally in a very interesting way, uh, as Ellen was saying, you know, she was there because of this sort of military reason that steel drums really came out of, you know, the U.S. military being in the region, and but people there turned it into this wonderful form of expression and joy, and that's quite a a wonderful kind of allegory for a lot of culture, I think, in the, in the Caribbean. 
This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Joshua Jelly Shapiro is the author of Island People, the Caribbean and the World. He joins us from NPR Studios in New York. Coming up, we'll talk more specifically about the people from the islands who migrated to Connecticut. Do you have roots in places like Jamaica, Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, or Trinidad? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The Caribbean is a string of island nations from Cuba all the way down to Aruba, and they're vastly different from size, race, language, and culture. Today we're talking about how the Caribbean influenced not only our region but our world with author Joshua Jelly Shapiro. His new book is called Island People. Now, most Connecticut residents know the state has a big Puerto Rican and Jamaican population. Coming up later in the hour, we'll hear from local residents with ties to these countries. We'll find out how they and their families ended up settling in the Northeast. Now, joining me now in studio, is Leslie Demongla. He's director of the New Center for Caribbean Studies at Trinity College in Hartford, also professor of religious studies and international studies. Leslie, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So we're talking about the Caribbean. Obviously, we wanted to find out more about this this new program at Trinity. What's the mission? Well, the mission is really to engage with the community, uh, to learn from the community, but also to uh, make a contribution to the community as well. There was a very large... uh, West Indian community here in, in, in Hartford, and we're very interested in engaging with that community and making a contribution to it. Now tell us about your roots. Well, I'm from Haiti originally, uh, and uh, I came to, uh, uh, I was sent to Canada at a very, very early age to study, so I was there for four years and then came back, came to the United States then after that uh, for my uh, college and, uh, and uh, graduate education. We were talking earlier with the author who's still with us from uh, the studios of NPR in New York um, about the the huge uh, Jamaican uh, population here in Connecticut. Uh, We know there's many Puerto Ricans here. Tell me about the Haitian population. Well, the Haitian population has been very active. There are a few of them actually here in in, the Hartford area, but actually in the southern part of of Connecticut, there are quite a few, maybe six or 7,000. So um, uh, they've all concentrated down there primarily because they've been able to find um, work there, much more so than in the Hartford area. But they've been very active, and most of them are actually professionals, and they're working for the insurance companies and and, uh, various corporations in the area. Now take us back uh, through Connecticut history about when we saw many Caribbean immigrants coming to the state to work. Yeah, th- this is something that happened uh, back in the 1930s when the, the, the unions were being formed uh, in the United States. Uh, a lot of the uh, tobacco companies, and as you know, Connecticut was very famous for tobacco. It grew tobacco, and the tobacco leaf was actually used to wrap the cigars and not so much to actually make the cigars. So it was uh, Connecticut tobacco was very, very well known uh, throughout the world. And so when unions were being formed in this country, uh, a lot of the uh, companies that grew tobacco and produced this, um, uh, these leaves uh, and exported them went to Puerto Rico and also to Jamaica and then um, um, had um, special employment uh, offices there and were able to bring people here. And, then of course, what you know, what you could imagine, once you have... Um, few people who come to work, uh, then members of the family begin to arrive and friends to come to arrive as well. So in the end, you really had a very large West Indian population in the city of Hartford. And uh, that 
has spread uh, and so that a lot of the West Indians then have gone to other parts of um, of the state, including Springfield. I mean, Springfield also has a very large, Springfield, Massachusetts, a very large uh, population of West Indians as well. I want to turn back to uh, Joshua Jelly Shapiro again, author of Island People, the Caribbean and the World. Um, you traveled all throughout the, the Caribbean, Joshua. When you uh, met people from Jamaica, from Haiti, from the Dominican Republic, um, when they knew that you were from the Northeast, uh, did they talk about their relatives, their family that might be up there? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Excuse me. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you go throughout all the islands, of course, that that's a that's an easy and a and a good and a common subject of conversation. You know, I say, oh, where are you from in the States? And I'm from, I live in New York now. And everyone, of course, has a cousin or a relative or a friend who lives in Brooklyn or Boston or, you know, if you're in Cuba, of course, you know, they're in Miami or New Jersey. Uh, so absolutely that kind of diaspora of, of Caribbean people in the United States, of course, in Europe as well. But uh, no, there's there's just vast numbers of people here from the islands and, and those ties are strong. And you even hear stories about, you know, some various of the small islands in particular I'm thinking of St. Vincent, for example. They, you know, they allow the people who have emigrated to vote in elections back home. So you have literally candidates who come to Brooklyn to campaign. You know, so the <laughs> the ways in which these nations are are you know dispersed across um, across this part of the country and and the world is is really a, a big part of their culture and their politics now. Absolutely. Now, when uh, I'll turn back to Leslie, when we uh, look back down in the, in the region, uh, when you're in Haiti or uh, the Dominican Republic, you know, how do they view um, each other? Because I know there's been tensions uh, um, through history, um, and I'm curious. Um, while we, when we come up to the to this country and we talk about our our immigrant history and similarities, but when you're back down in the in the Caribbean, you know, how do they play off of each other? Is there hostility? No, I wouldn't say that there is hostility. It's, it's just that I think people who are in the Caribbean, many of them live on islands and they probably uh, know, don't know as much about each other than they know about Americans because primarily because uh, there are um, more people um, who have members of the family living in the U.S. Uh, and therefore they know a great deal more about the U.S. than they know about each other in this case. But the tension has been there between the Dominican Republic and Haiti. This is a tension that dates way, way, way back. People don't know that, but actually the Dominican Republic won its independence in the 19th century, and it learned it got its independence from from uh, from Haiti and not uh, not from Spain. Mm-hmm. Um, and it so happened that in the ni- 19th century, the Haitian army marched in the Dominican. Uh, well, it was just not the Dominican Republic in those days, but marched in Santo Domingo and then took over the place. And um, uh, the Dominicans really never forgot that. So. It, there, there's been some tension there between the two countries for quite some time. And, of course, there was this terrible massacre of Haitians that took place in the early 20th century with uh, with Trujillo, who was then president at the time, and the massacre of Haitians, which uh, therefore also left a bad taste on part of Haitians and as well as Dominicans who felt that a lot of Haitian population living in the Dominican Republic were actually taking a lot of jobs from Dominicans. Mm. So there, there's been some tensions there, but I wouldn't say that there are tensions between the different islands at all. Now, there is a, a cultural difference um, because if, you, you know, Haiti, for example, was, was French mm-hmm. and it was a French colony. And then you had these other places, that, uh, these other islands that were essentially uh, British colonies. So there is a, there is a, 
a divide there in terms of culture. Uh, so um, that division in that case, a cultural division and social divisions, uh, has therefore created that kind of um, uh, separation perhaps uh, among among the people. But uh, I couldn't say that this was mm-hmm. actually a tension that existed between them. And I wanted to turn back to Joshua. We heard from a caller earlier who mentions uh, many different resorts. That's what many Americans think of when they think of the Caribbean, a great place to vacation, and they go to a resort, they stay there. Uh, but there's a lot of extreme poverty um, along these islands. I mean, what ha- what needs to change to help these impoverished areas like Haiti um, rebuild? Yes. Well, that you know, the question of tourism in the Caribbean and tourism as a sort of strategy for development is, you know, it's a big one, and it's something that goes back several decades. You know, many of the islands, once sort of sugar started to decline, and also once they gained their independence, the British islands uh, in the in the fifties and sixties, uh, the French islands re- decided to stay a part of France, Martinique and Guadeloupe. That is Haiti, of course, having won its independence uh, two hundred years ago. Uh, but tourism is a – it's a tricky thing because all of these islands, you know, they all sort of say, okay, we have these beautiful beaches and people want to come to them and, and that's a that's a very nice thing. But it's – in a sense, they're all competing against each other to sort of have the same tourists. And it's a tricky industry because, you know, when the economy here goes down, there are less tourists. Uh, it's a situation where these poor places are competing against each other in a sense. You also have a – a situation where many of the hotels and resorts, certainly in a place like Jamaica, uh, you know, are not owned by Jamaicans. They're owned by sort of Spanish companies, and the money that comes there isn't staying in Jamaica. So all that is to say that tourism is an important part of the economy of the region, absolutely. But it's a tricky one, and it's not a not necessarily a reliable uh, source of income. And I think it's a big riddle, honestly, uh, how to sort of have... Um, development and economic development in these places, which is why many of them, you know, are defined by people emigrating and leaving them to find to find work elsewhere. Um, so it's a it's a big big riddle, including in in Haiti, right? Uh, Leslie was mentioning the the ways in which people in the Dominican Republic have uh, there's been this sort of tense history, and many people in Haiti, of course, still go to the Dominican Republic to cut sugarcane. Mm. Uh, but there's a dynamic there that's very sort of sad and tense where people in the Dominican Republic say, you know, we don't want these immigrants here. And, of course, they're doing important work to the Dominican economy, you know, not unlike our our sort of conversation about immigrants here. There's a contradiction there. Yeah. Um, so in any case, it's a big vexed question. And I'll let Leslie have the last word before we go to break. Just about 30 seconds. Yeah, I just wanted to add something that Joshua was saying, um, and that is that the uh, tourist industry sometimes can be very expensive to a country because you have to have a large hotel, you have to maintain the beaches, you have to, um, uh, you have, to have good roads, you have to have a good airport, you have to maintain it. So all of that tends to be rather, rather expensive to a country as well. There's never really been any study that's actually shown that tourism has actually been uh, advantageous in the long run for any one of these countries. Leslie DeMongla is director of the New Center for Caribbean Studies at Trinity College in Hartford, a native of Haiti, also professor of religious and international studies at Trinity. Thanks for coming on the show. We appreciate it, Leslie. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Now, coming up, we'll hear from more Connecticut residents with Caribbean roots. And if you listen to Where We Live Daily, we hope you'll support the show and WMPR. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you how.
Well, thank you so much, Lucy. You can call 1-800-584-2788 to make a pledge of support. You can also go online to wnpr.org. There you can take a look at some of the wonderful thank you items that we have on offer right now. We're coming to you for just a few short days at the end of the calendar year to ask for your support. It's a time when a lot of people are trying to make uh, end-of-the-year charitable donations, and a charitable donation to WNPR would be a really good one, especially in support of a program that brings you so much like where we live. I'm John Dankowski here with Heather Brandon this morning. Uh, A very good day to you, Heather. Good morning. Hi. So uh, we're off to a pretty good start so far today, but we only have a few days left in this membership drive, and we'd really like to make sure we meet our overall goals. Right now, our goal is $1,000, so you can start that off, 1-800-584-2788. I hope you're enjoying this conversation about the islands in the Caribbean, or Caribbean, however you choose to pronounce it, uh, Jamaica, Puerto Rico, Haiti, uh, the Dominican Republic, Cuba, All a shout out to all those countries and people who come from there and have spread around the world and uh, brought their culture with them. And Uh, Lucy is uh, having this conversation like she does every day. She brings to you really interesting stories, fascinating people from Connecticut who have connections from around the world. And she also brings to you um, all sorts of ideas and topics that you might not have thought were so interesting until it was in your ear, in your ears. And you were like, this is an amazing thing that I'm, I'm really enjoying. And that's the kind of stuff that you can hear on WNPR. I really love um, the variety of issues that Where We Live talks about. It's one of the things that I listened to first when I moved to Connecticut a few years back. And it really helped me identify with what Connecticut is and who its people are. And that's the kind of thing that I think uh, you should support, too, since you're a listener right now. 1-800-584-2788 or WNPR.org. Yeah, Heather, that's something you and I have talked about a lot. You, you uh, came as a listener to uh, WNPR, and you were a guest on the program. And you ended up working on, on Where We Live uh, along with me in, in that uh, idea of having a place where people who aren't from around here can get their orientation about what the state's about. That's what a program like Where We Live is supposed to do. We're supposed to uh, bring you stories and conversations that help orient you to your world. And, and I hope that that's something you appreciate. Now, there's a lot of ways you can say thanks to us at various membership levels. We're going to suggest just a few, but one of the most popular items that's only available this week uh, Heather is the White Flower Farm Amaryllis. So this is a gift for just $6 a month, and it's a beautiful flower. You you probably, if you know about Amaryllis, then you know about them, and you'll probably want to get one. If you don't know about them, we're going to try to explain them to you. But they're beautiful plants that bloom in the, in the midwinter, and they give you a little shot of color uh, during the bleakest time of the year. So give us a call at 1-800-584-2788 or go online to WNPR.org if you would like to get an amaryllis bulb sent to your home. Yeah, and that's for a gift of just $6 a month or a one-time gift of $72. They're fantastic regal plants that just stand tall and look you straight in the eye and say, you know what, spring is actually around the corner. might not (laughs) feel like it right now, but it really is. So please do drop by WNPR.org or call us at 1-800-584-2788 for the amaryllis bulb. Another thank you item that we have for you is this fantastic WNPR stainless steel water bottle that's for hot or cold items. It's pretty cool looking. It's sort of slick black matte with a silver WNPR logo and stainless steel uh, features um, at the top and bottom. It's really great. It's 17 ounces, double walled, um, and I'm hearing from people who have used it around the station that it's really great. So give us a call, 1-800-584-2788. That water bottle is yours for just $10 a month, or you could give us $120 
and it's yours. You know, I I often say that there are items that I, I love, but I don't have them myself. I can vouch for this. I have one of these water bottles from another radio station. It is fantastic. It keeps cold things cold and hot things hot. It's really worthwhile getting. If you want to pledge right now at 1-800-584-2788, you can get that. It's a gift of $10 a month. Uh, we've got other thank you items you can shop for online at WNPR.org. But I know it's not about the shopping for you. What it's about is the radio program. This show, Where We Live, has been bringing you uh, news and views and ideas for such a long time. Please help support it and keep it here. 1-800-584-2788. Do your part now, and thanks. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. As we settle into another New England winter, today we're taking you to the Caribbean to find out more about its people, its culture, and its influence on Connecticut. Joining us from NPR New York studios, Joshua Jelly Shapiro, author of Island People, the Caribbean and the World. And joining uh, the conversation now are two Connecticut residents with ties to the Caribbean. Uh, first, uh, Reverend Dr. Damaris Whitaker, Senior Minister of the First Church of Christ in Hartford. Welcome back to the show, Damaris. Thank you for having me. And on the phone with us is Corrine Holness, President of the Jamaican American Connection in New, New Haven. She's also Chair of the Caribbean Heritage Festival in New Haven and Sistas Jammin, an annual women's retreat to Jamaica. Corrine, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. So I wanted to start off with uh, Damaris. Uh, tell us about uh, where you come from and how your family found their way to Connecticut. Thank you. I am originally from Puerto Rico, and uh, my family came uh, actually to Massachusetts, uh, to the Springfield area. Uh, my grandfather was a farm worker. Uh, as we as we know here in, in this area, there, there were many um, that came here because of the farms. And so it's interesting in my family because the move to the United States uh, was not originated by my grandfather. It was actually my grandmother who sort of said, you know, uh, we have to do something to not only uh, better ourselves economically, but to really redefine our lives. And she picked up her two kids and decided to move to New York. And then um, he will had no other choice than to follow her. Mm-hmm. And I thought that my grandmother was um, quite a feminist uh, at that time where women uh, were not recognized as being feminist. And so he did come here and he uh, worked in the farms and my uncles followed. And that tradition actually, or, or that uh, vocation, uh, it stayed in my family until most recent, my brother, who used to go to uh, high school and in the summers he worked uh, in the farms. Uh, so it, it was a, it's an interesting journey um, of economic uh, purpose, but also a, a purpose of redefining uh, a family. And Corrine, what about you? How did you come here from Jamaica? Well, I came um, because I got married to my old high school boyfriend and he had moved here by his mother so he came back and he brought me here so the theme of love also (laughs) (laughs) right so we think of uh greater hartford uh we we know there's lots of of jamaicans you're down in new haven tell us about uh the jamaican population down there well the jamaican population is in new haven is the second fastest growing um population behind puerto ricans Mm -hmm. the puerto ricans and um we are, you know, still in the process of, you know, establishing ourselves. We're not as um, strong as Hartford in terms of, uh, you know, because Hartford has been there because the farms were there. So, the Harf- you know, Hartford has a lot more Jamaicans. But we're still here um, contributing in forms of um, entrepreneurship, uh, health care, education, fashion, music. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're doing here in New Haven. I understand St. Luke's Church down in New Haven has a very strong Caribbean uh, influence. 
Yes, it was. It, it Saint Luke's is the first church that was started by Caribbeans, um, actually, um, from Saint Kitts and Nevis, and that was started in the 16th, 16th century, I think it was, because they came here as indentured servants then, and they needed somewhere to worship, and so Saint Luke's was started, and they're still going strong. Hmm. You know. A lot of people from the Caribbean have a sense of pride, um, and uh, they almost are between two worlds, but there's a connection still. Uh, what, what, about, what about some of the perceptions that people who are not from the Caribbean have of uh, your culture, whether it's Jamaica, Puerto Rico, the Trinidad? Uh, what are some of the perceptions that, um, I guess, mis- misperceptions that you, that you notice uh, when you're here and have, have uh, come up with a life here in Connecticut? I'll start with you, Corrine. Well, I think the misconception is that um, we stick to ourselves, um, and I think we, 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 we tend to gravitate to each other because it's the commonality, um, and we, we work hard, and we, you know, we want the very best, and I think part of it is because we knew that for you know, coming to a country that there's endless opportunities especially where you're coming from a country that's a developing country versus to a developed country. So our, our, I think our goal is different in the sense that because it's something that we, we, we work towards. Um, and, um, but I think in actuality, we're all the same. Um, we're still in the same boat. We still have the same struggles. We have the same obstacles. We have the same opportunities. Damaris. Mm-hmm. I, I think that for the Puerto Rican community, I think that many things that um, are the same as the Jamaican community. People think that we stick to ourselves, that we, we're one group that think the same, that vote the same, uh-huh. um, that women um, make the same choices. Like I remember my first jobs here in Hartford, uh, somebody said to me, well, Damaris, why don't you have six kids? Because Puerto Rican women what? can decide not to have any children. And we, and so those are the perceptions, right? Because we look at, um, I, you know, as I was saying before the show, Lucy, we, we look at different as less than. And we use words as primitive or not uh, sophisticated or they're too emotional or they move their hands too much. And so we, in Connecticut, we, we have to work more into... Um, be truthful in multiculturalism, and what we do very well is uh, just asking people to integrate. But we are not in diversity. We are not to integrate. We are to come with our whole selves. And so Latinos and, and Puerto Ricans and people from the Caribbean, we you know we are not the same. Uh, we have different stories, different histories. The perception is that if you talk to a Puerto Rican, you've talked to the whole. Uh, Latin America, and so they're able to speak for so many uh, countries. And I think that we need to begin in in the United States to understand that every island and every country has its own history and its own diversity within. I think that's uh, part of uh, the the goal of your book, Joshua Jelly Shapiro, again, author of Island People, the Caribbean and the World. Um, You know, there's a lot of details as you travel around to these different island nations. Do you think perceptions are changing? I, I certainly I hope so. You know, I think that um, that question of sort of unity or projecting this idea that everyone's the same onto the <clears throat> onto the region is, you know, it's an old thing. It's an interesting thing that many of the intellectuals from the region, whether from Cuba or Haiti or Jamaica or Puerto Rico or, you know, like to talk about Caribbeanness as this thing. But there is, of course, this tremendous diversity of experience and history and different 
different empires that ruled these islands, different experiences with the United States. And, you know, the story of, of Puerto Rico is a, is a very interesting and, and unique one in that uh, its relationship with the United States as a kind of quasi-colony with all the kind of injustice that, that goes along with that, uh, but also that, that Puerto Ricans were able, uh, because the, the, the laws went in, you know, at World War I time, way before uh, people from the other islands were able to emigrate to the United States without, uh, you know, without sort of the difficult process of getting a visa, you know, which is why the Puerto Rican population in New York in particular, you know, was big and strong and, and proud uh, from quite early on, the 30s, 40s, 50s, right? And and you see that every year, of course, in the Puerto Rican Day Parade, uh, you know, taking over Fifth Avenue, this this remarkable kind of celebration of, of Puerto Ricanness and Puerto Rican culture, which has in very interesting ways, you know, been shaped and evolved in New York as much as it has been in Puerto Rico over the last several several decades, you know. Uh, salsa happens in New York as much as it happens in back in the islands. It's a very interesting history. And may I just say, uh, Lucy, that the realities of, of identity of Puerto Ricans in the island here, New York, and even New York versus New England, right? We have this term called New Yorkans, right, that I saw in Josh's book. Yeah. Uh, he, he makes a reference to that. But we never say New England Ricans, right? So there are people who take objection to the New Yorkan term in terms of say, because they think that, you know, it dilutes their identity. As some people have said, I am a New York a New Yorker and I am a Puerto Rican. I am not a New Yorkan. And uh, when people ask me, Demaris, are you a New Englander, although you've been here for over 30 years? I say, no, I'm a Puerto Rican. So this identity of the, the, the people from the Caribbean in the diaspora mm-hmm. is one that is absolutely separate. It, it, it deserves distinct observation and recognition than people who are still in the island. It's well, two different experiences. Corrine? Well, one of the things when I say that we're the same, right, because um, for me in New Haven, before I'm known as a Jamaican, I'm known as a black woman. Mm-hmm. And so until I open my mouth, I'm from the Caribbean. And then, of course, when you're from the Caribbean, it's like you're looked at differently. But when, I'm, when I said the same, we still have the same struggles. Um, my thing is for us as, you know, the darker, on the darker um, spectrum, that's where the same comes in. But, yes, we in the islands, we may all eat rice, but it's all prepared differently. We all have issues. We all deal with it differently. We all have different um, governments and so on and so forth. But we still have our national pride because that is something that was instilled. And I think it's generation. It doesn't matter who you are. Generation, generation, generation. We're going to hold on to the fact that I'm Jamaican, that um, you know, you're from Puerto Rico or you're from Guyana. We, we, we hold on to those things. And Karen, you mentioned challenges. Um, what challenges do Jamaicans face when they move here and, and, and work to assimilate? Uh, well, the challenges are, you know, you may not be able to rent somewhere because of your color. You don't have um, credit history. You, you rely on your community to, to support you until you can then, you know, create the history, because you come here, especially when you come here as an adult, when you come in as an adult, you have, you know, there are certain things that is in place that is not there for you because you are coming as an adult. When you come as a child, a different, it's a little different because you're going through the school system. And so you create that history that, that America wants. And so, um, the, so the challenges is work history, 
Um, so you have to rely on your community to then be the ones to pave the way for you. Mm. And Damaris, when you tell people you're from Puerto Rico and they don't know anything about the island, are they surprised? Do they assume that you're from somewhere else? They do. They assume I am from India because I am a, a dark Puerto Rican <laughs> with a different texture hair. And so uh, everyone is so surprised. And, I, and I'm glad so that I'm breaking, right? I, I always say about my husband that he's, he's a man breaking stereotypes one conversation at a time. I, I am a woman breaking stereotypes just by showing up, right? Because people um, don't think that I am from Puerto Rico because of the way I look. And, and perhaps that's, that's just an example of how we are so diverse in one, in one island, never mind um, across the Caribbean. I just want to, I, you know, what, um, what we were talking about, it's really important because I just came from Oxford, uh, England, from studying there for a few weeks in the university. And there there is a Caribbean quarter where there's Jamaican food and you can eat rice and beans and Jamaican patties and you can have all these all this, um, Caribbean foods. And I, I felt so affirmed uh, that there in Europe, I'm in this place that it, when I took a left and I was just in this Caribbean quarter, and I, it really affirmed for me the influence of the Caribbean around the world. When I went to India, to Bangalore, mm-hmm. uh, there were salsa classes going on everywhere. And, you know, whether we like to admit it or not, the Caribbean it continues to influence the world, not only in music and in food, but in so many other ways. It really is a fascinating place. I want to turn back to author Joshua Jelly Shapiro before we go to break. You know, again, your book is very dense. You travel around the region. Forty million people make up the Caribbean, uh, not just the island nations, but also the coastal communities when you look at uh, also the Yucatan Peninsula, parts mm-hmm. of Venezuela. Um, so much to see and learn. What are some big takeaways? Oh, well, you know, I think, as I say, my sort of mission with the book has absolutely been to go beyond the sort of vision of a picturesque Caribbean of beaches and sun and and to say that, you know, the cultures and the histories of this part of the world have been, uh, as as we were just saying, you know, have been absolutely central to to shaping the history of, of, of the world, of global capitalism, but also of, of culture. You know, you can't go... Everywhere you go in the world right now, literally, you know, you can find a, an image of Bob Marley on a, on a wall somewhere. And the, the rhythms and, and things that you hear, uh, you know, what we call, quote, Latin music, often sort of inaccurately, you know, it's very much rhythms from the Caribbean, from Cuba, from Puerto Rico. Um, and I think that sort of honoring the history and influence of this part of the world is really uh, the mission of my book. And I hope, hope something it's been able to do. Joshua Jelly Shapiro, again, author of Island People, the Caribbean and the World. Thank you, Joshua, for your time. Thank you. Pleasure. Also, Reverend Dr. Damaris Whitaker, Senior Minister of the First Church of Christ in Hartford. I appreciate your insight. And Corrine Holness, President of the Jamaican-American Connection in New Haven. Thank you for joining us, Corrine. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And thanks for listening to Where We Live uh, daily here on WMPR. A lot of hard work uh, that goes into to putting the show together. Thanks to my producers, Jeff Tyson and Lydia Brown, executive producer Katie Tolarski, technical producer Kion Wolf. It's our uh, winter fun drive. We hope you'll support this show in WMPR. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you how. And greetings. We are here asking for your support on this uh, winter day where we are having... 
um, a one-week fund drive looking for your contribution, uh, whether it's monthly or uh, a one-time contribution. We'd love to hear from you at 1-800-584-2788 or WNPR.org. I'm Heather Brandon here with John Dankosky, who uh, would like you to think about getting an amaryllis bulb. Yes, I I would. Here's what I was thinking about. The amaryllis bulb is only available during this end of the, the calendar year. Uh, drive, and we do it in the middle of wintertime because we, we think you're looking ahead to the wintertime for a little shot of color. Let me let you uh, consider the amaryllis bulb for just $6 a month as a type of metaphor for your membership in WNPR. Throughout the entire year, you, you lay dormant. You're, you're sort of you know hidden away from your WNPR membership, not because you don't love it, but because you've got other things to do. So you're sort of hidden away in this little ball. And then at the end of the year, magically you burst forth into all sorts of color and and you support this radio station you help us survive through just the the joy that you bring and the little bit of dollars that you bring that's kind of what an amaryllis is like too it's just it's there in a little ball and then it explodes with color in the middle of the winter so that's what I want you to think about when you get this amaryllis bulb. Send it to someone you love if they need a little bit of color in their life or keep it for yourself. $6 a month from White Flower Farm, one of my favorite places. And you can uh, call us right now, 1-800-584-2780. That's only $72 a whole year to support all this great stuff. So do it, please, at that level or whatever other level feels comfortable to you at 1-800-584-2788. I love that, John. And I, I'm thinking about the care and feeding that goes into taking care of a plant. It's not like the plant is, you know, sending you emails to remind you that you have to take care of it. Just like WNPR doesn't come knocking on your door and we don't bother you. We don't send you reminders. We just want you to think of us like you would think of a plant that you care for. Maybe you put it in a special place. You remember to water it. And, and listening to the news is something like that, maybe. It's, it's there for you as long as you care for it and you take the time to remember that it's there and you need it because that bright color in the middle of the winter is just the right thing. It, it really is. And, and it's one of the thank you items we can send you. And it is a, it's, I, I like the metaphor, but again, you might not want an Amaryllis bulb. You might want a beautiful water bottle that we have. This is WMPR on the side for a gift of $10 a month. You might not want a gift. You might just want to support the programming like Marina from Vernon did, uh, who wrote us a very nice note. We've been listening to WNPR ever since we moved to the U.S. four years ago. I cannot imagine my day without the news and detailed information about state and national issues. Thank you. And, and Marina, thank you very much for your very generous contribution. So many people who come to Connecticut for the first time seek out their public radio station, WNPR, because they want to know what's happening in their world. So call us with a pledge. Join Marina. Join Lisa from Pleasant Valley. Make your voice heard. Call us or go online to WNPR.org. If you want to call, 1-800-584-2788. And thanks.